All right, welcome to another Apex Vaulting Podcast episode. Uh, we're up to episode 80 now. Uh, we have a great guest for you today. It's Eric Bennett. Uh, he's been coaching pole vault for a long time. Uh, he has been head coach of several different um, Division three track teams. Um, we're going to have a great conversation about just that that college versus club scene, all kinds of different topics. Um, and, you know, I hope you enjoy the episode. And if you do enjoy listening, please subscribe to the Apex Vaulting Podcast on iTunes. Um, you can also check us out on Instagram at The Real Apex Vaulting or Apex Vaulting on Facebook, Snapchat, Twitter, and TikTok. And of course, if you have any comments or questions, uh, please email us at apexvaulting at gmail.com. Here's the episode. All right, here we have uh, Eric Bennett on the line. Uh, Eric, I hope you're you're doing well during this whole uh, coronavirus uh, pandemic. Um, why don't you tell the listeners like a little bit about your background? I, I already said in the intro, you know, you, you've coached, uh, been head coach at a couple different colleges. Uh, give us some background. How did you get involved in the vault? Uh, so I started vaulting 26 years ago. Wow. Um, so I've been around for a while. And I actually started because uh, when I was in middle school, we shared a track with the high school team. Mm-hmm. And Pennsylvania, you're not allowed to, to pole ball in middle school, but a couple of us were like, man, that looks really cool. So, you know, let's go talk coach if we can do it. Yeah. And the deal was high school and middle school finish your practice, and afterwards you can go and play around in it. So right. I started by pole vaulting into a sand pit. And I awesome. did that for two years until I got to high school. Okay. Then we started competing, competed through that, um, and then was lucky enough that even though my PR wasn't great, I jumped 11-9 in high school, mm-hmm. um, was able to be a part of the first recruited class ever at Elizabethtown College okay. and jumped for them for a number of years and won a conference title, so so did fairly well. So what, what did you end um, up jumping in college then? I jumped uh, 14-3. Uh, for the team, and then one summer unattached, I hit my PR of fifteen seven. Oh wow, awesome! So I, I mean, it's, it's a couple a couple things because I just I, I think there was so much good stuff that you just already said, and I, I just want to hit upon it more. Um, one, I I think that's the reason I know pole vault could be a big sport because I don't think there's a single person that when they see it, they're not like, wow, that looks cool. You know what I mean? It, even if they're – maybe they're scared to try it. I'm sure there's people like that. But like there's – everybody's like, wow, that looks cool. And for young kids, they, they want to dive in. And I think also what you mentioned, like jumping in the sand pit, I think that's a great way to start kids off because sometimes it's just like the mats are too high for, for younger athletes. Um, and so it's like if you have a flat surface like the sand pit, it's safe and they can really learn how to take off. I mean that that's huge. Um, and so – Going into what you just said, how did you go from you know being an eleven plus guy to to a fifteen seven guy through college? Like, what, what what do you attribute that to? So in in high school and even like you know that middle school period, um, the sand pit. I didn't have to worry about a box. I didn't have to worry about my run. Just pick up a pole. Like they taught us how to carry it, and that was it. Yeah, and just jump. And right. so and, and when we got to high school, everything was about getting on a big pole getting on a long run and making whatever bar you can. And we had some good athletes doing that. Right. Um, but part of it was we just had a very large vault squad. We usually have, you know, six to ten guys. Um, and this was – I was in high school when women first started pole vaulting. Okay. Um, so there weren't a whole lot of women around. Um, but there was already a lot of us. So there's going to be some good athletes there. When I got to college, the biggest thing was, you know, first day with the team, we were told right away – I am not your college or I'm not your high school coach. I'm not going to coach like your high school coach does, but I'm going to make you better. Mm-hmm. So right away, like it's all on the table. This is what we're going to do. And you're going to have to leave your past behind. And we focused on the run. My run was awful. Mm-hmm. I didn't get my knees up at all. I had a huge backside. Mm-hmm. I was six foot two, 125 pounds. So like not a whole lot of muscle mass. And we just, we made me an athlete. Like I was yeah. able to start to learn how to run. I got a lot stronger and then everything else just kind of came together. Yeah. Well, I, I think that's huge. I, I feel like so many people are so obsessed with everything that happens after takeoff um, that I, I feel like, you know, they don't understand. It's like if you don't develop an athlete's run, you're losing so much. Like if you could teach someone to run front side, have open up their stride, be at full speed at takeoff. 
I mean, that is going to yield almost way more than if, like, I don't know, you keep your legs together as you turn. You know what I mean? It's like if I if I had to say what's what's the most bang for the buck, it's like I'm I'm going to go runway before I say something over the bar. You know what I mean? Well, and my grip didn't change a whole lot from high school to college. Um, but and I still remember my numbers. So I don't know why. It just yeah it sticks in my head. But my high school approach was 88 feet. That was okay. an eight left. Okay. In college, when I graduated, my eight left was 115.4. Yeah. So just based on stride frequency versus stride length, if I stay the exact same frequency, well, now I'm covering almost 40 feet more space in the right. same amount of steps and time. Right. So I'm moving faster. Yeah. No, that and that's gonna that's gonna make a huge difference. Do you, do you know like pole wise, like what what were the changes in poles over that time span? So when I was in high school, I was gripping uh, around fourteen six on a fifteen one thirty five catapult. Wow. Um, and so no technique in the air, just hold high, jump, and, and make it. And what uh, what was the high school PR again? Eleven nine. Wow! So you can you can figure out that negative. Yeah. <laughs> we had really deep boxes, so you know, I made up for it. Um, but but it's it's when, funny, like you even saying you said a fifteen one thirty five. Yeah. A fifteen one thirty five. It's like this is where even like sometimes when I hear people talk about like the weight rule, you know why why the weight rule for high school kids and and the thing is like I'm not very pro weight rule because I don't think it really like I've seen people break poles that are twenty pounds above their weight and I've seen people safely jump on poles forty pounds below their weight. You know I I, I think there's more involved to it than that. But part of the reason they made the weight rules because they had so many high school kids. We're jumping on these really, really small, long poles. And oh, it's yeah. like now that's like a recipe for disaster. I mean, if you just think about the numbers, it's highly more likely that you're going to snap a 1535. You know what I mean? Like, oh, I, I was flexing it while running. You could watch the tip bend yeah, in the air. Right. Um, so that was crazy. But yeah, then, then when we got to college, I blew through a whole bunch of poles first two years. Mm-hmm. Um, my senior year, uh, my college PR came on a – uh, fifteen one one seventy five UCS. Wow. Yeah, and I was gripping on that. I was probably gripping around fourteen ten. Mm-hmm. Um, and then my my PR um from those summer meets was actually the the only time I was able to get on to sixteen foot poles was over the summer. Okay. Um, I was also at a Catholic college, so I took the volume away and just focused on vault. Yeah, and it was able to let me recover and get those higher grips. So I jumped um, my fifteen seven uh, with a fifteen six grip on a sixteen one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and and I mean the thing that people need to understand too, even if they just look at what you did in college, yeah, maybe your grip didn't go up a lot. But the thing is that speed, that extra almost 40 feet of runway allowed you to get on way stiffer poles. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. So, you know, that that's huge. So how, how did you how did you then get into coaching? Like what what, what made you take that step? Uh, that, that's a, a good story that uh, kind of involves a few colleges. Um, I was in my senior year. I wanted to stay involved in the sport in some way, and I didn't know how to. Mm-hmm. So um, – I was approached by the coach from Messiah College, who was our rival school, about, hey, we have an opening. We'd love for you to come and volunteer as a pole vault coach for us. Our vaulters really respect you as an athlete, and I think that you would work well with them. Okay. And so I'm on board with this, and I said, yeah, I'll do that. And so my plan was as soon as I was done competing in college, uh, enter the workforce and then have this this uh, volunteer job on the side. Okay. Um, our head coach, Elizabethtown, had heard about this. And so after my final championship meet my senior year, uh, he goes on my cool down run with me. And he's talking about, you know, what what is my future. Um, and when we're done, he's like, so I heard you're going to go coach at Messiah. I said, yeah, you know, I was offered a position there and I want to stay involved. Yeah. And never forget this line. He looked me dead in the eye and goes, what have I taught you over the last four years about loyalty? I was like, oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Uh, well, there's not a position open. Like, my pole vault coach is still here. Right. But don't worry about it. I've talked to him. He's going to take over sprints hurdles. You have a position on our staff, and I'll pay you. All right. Done deal. Wow. Wow. That's crazy. 
that's I I feel like that's such a crazy uh j- just like in my head I'm like yeah I I I probably would have reacted worse than you did because I would be like bro like I'm just trying to get a job like <laughs> you know what I mean like this, this is not you know I I don't understand like this is not like war you know what I mean it's like these right. are college track teams you know well, um, it catches you off guard like you're just sitting there having a friendly conversation I'll start like you're being your loyalties being questioned by a guy who's you know, been your college father figure for four years. I was right. Like, All right. Right. <laughs> what what yeah. did I do wrong? <laughs> oh boy. All right. So, so you you end up at E Town. So, so walk us through that. How did you? And and I think for a lot of people who are listening, I think this is good because I think many people who are involved in the pole vault community. They may not understand one. I, I always hear from people. It's like, oh, I don't know why I can't get a paid position. You know, maybe you can get into that, like what it takes to have a paid position at the college level and what it takes to climb the ranks and eventually become a head coach. Because I, I, I don't think people really understand the the college coaching climate. You know, and if someone out there is interested in becoming a college coach, I think you definitely have plenty of advice to give out. Oh man, that's it's a tough ladder to climb, and sometimes it's not even the same ladder. Yeah. Uh, Right. Yeah, you know, like the, I kind of lucked into my alma mater giving me a job right away, and from there, like I got hooked my first year. And I was trying to figure out training protocols and everything. So a lot of that first year was I was plugging in workouts that I had done that I knew worked for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I was noticing it wasn't working for some of the athletes. So then I changed something, mm-hmm. and that wasn't working. So I changed it again. And that first year. It, I had these drastic changes in training programs and like there was no consistency. So there was no data to say what was working, what wasn't, but I was just throwing anything against the wall and seeing what stuck. Um, yeah, I think, yeah, I think as a young coach, a lot of times, like you're not quite sure. I mean, you have your own experience, but listen, I always put this out there. If you are training your athletes just based on your own experience, your sample size is one. You know what I mean? And so it's like in the beginning, you have to try different protocols and, and you have to – like you said, you have to see what works, what doesn't. Try to read the research. You have to be smart enough to understand what you're reading and understand what makes sense, what doesn't. Because I mean like I don't know. Like for example, I, I, I hope that everyone will agree with me on this. But when it became a fad to like do every barbell exercise on a BOSU ball – and balance, you know, it's like, listen, like balance is important, but there's like overkill, <laughs> you know what I mean? And so oh, yeah. it's like when you're trying to add a BOSU ball and a band and a chain to every single exercise and you you don't even know how to do a regular deadlift or a regular squat, like uh, maybe we need to pump the brakes a little bit, you know? So it's like you have to at least be able to think through these things and see what makes sense, you know what I mean? And then try stuff and see how athletes, uh, you know, how athletes uh, come through the program. And I think also what people have to be weary of is like, listen, if you have a stud, you could almost do anything with a stud. They're still going to be your best athlete. What you have to monitor is like, okay, when you make a change, like let's say you increase the volume of your work workouts or lower the volume, increase the intensity. When you do those things, how are all the athletes reacting? Are they all PRing around the same time? Are they all seeing, you know, big increases or are, are people getting stagnant? You know, you can't just be happy because your stud is still doing the same thing they did in high school, but at one conference. You know what I mean? It's like you have to try to get that person better, and you you have to really start to dissect that, you know? Well, and, and I think that especially early on in a college coaching career, um, your sample size is still going to be small. So, like, right. you know, I had a lot of success at E-Town, and how I got on from that job to others was, you know, I was there for five years, and by the time I left, we were taking four to eight positions on the podium for the men's side. We'd have two or three women on the podium every year. Right. We, we ran off a string of nine consecutive conference titles for the men indoor and out. And yeah. part of that was, it's like, all right, my sample size isn't huge, but there's all this education out there. Like I'm going to Atlantic city. I'm going to Reno. I'm going to Florida. And I'm listening to coaches talk because right. by digesting their information, now I'm gaining their sample sets and right. I'm getting what they tested so I don't have to go through those same things again. Right, right. No, 100%. That's like I always tell people when I first got beginner to Bupka, you know, I almost started like – almost think of like a a, pulvo, a coaching book as like a, a cookbook, right? And you have a bunch of recipes in there. And what I did was like I kind of sampled a couple recipes, 
from beginner to bupka and my athletes started jumping higher. And I'm like, well, the more of these recipes I follow, the higher my athletes jump. Why don't I just use the whole cookbook? <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I, I know this one uh, strength and conditioning coach, Mike Boyle, I, he has a great analogy for this. He talks about coaching as like being a cook, right? And there's three levels of cooks, right? You, uh, there's the cook, which just follows recipes to the T and takes orders from the sous chef and the chef. Then once you've been a cook long enough, you become a sous chef. Now you understand how to manipulate recipes. So if you add a little bit more flour or if you put some more salt in there or if you let it bake a little bit longer, whatever, you under, understand how to manipulate recipes and make adjustments for the ingredients that you have at hand, right? But the sous chef still answers to the chef. Once the sous chef has enough experience, then they become a chef. Now you can actually create your own recipes. And I, I would always say to people out there, when you're young, you want to be a cook. Don't try and be a chef. Don't try Absolutely. to whip up your own recipe when, like you said, you don't even have the sample size. You know what I mean? Try well, other recipes out and see what happens, and then eventually you can start to tinker. And, and that's one thing that I've harped on the last several years with the athletes I've coached is now I have a system and I know where to plug you into it. And what I get from those trainings now is I'm not, I'm not gathering it for their sample sizes. Now the world today, you know, everything's technology, but communication is still a key component to yeah. everything. Right. And so I tell them like, look, I'm not really gaining a whole lot of knowledge from some of these sessions, but every time I go, I'm still full heartedly engaged because I'm looking for a different way of telling you the same thing. Yeah. Everyone communicates differently. Right. So how, how I learn something isn't the same way that Bronco is going to learn something. Right. So what I have to do is, all right, so this is my system, but how do I say it to you to get you to figure it out? Right. And that's now what I gained from other coaches more than anything. Um, you know, you and I have coached against each other numerous times yeah. and I'll, I'll sit there and listen to how you coach. I'll listen to how Mike Lark coaches. I'll listen yeah. to how Kurt Dunn coaches. We all use different terminology, but you know what? If something that you said makes sense and I'm like, yeah, I think that my girl will get that. Let's try that. Yeah. And then it clicks. Well, now I might not have gained the sample size from you, but I gained the communication skill that works for this one athlete, and that makes it worthwhile. Well, right, and I mean, I, I think you're bringing up another great topic is like if you really want to be a good coach, if you really want to be a good leader, communication is key. You know, I, I mean, listen, I, I always talk about it. it you know, I, I mean, I have an education background. I used to be an English teacher. But, you know, you have to see what works for people. You know, there's positive reinforcement, negative reinforcement, and punishment, right? And and I always start out with positive reinforcement. Hey, that's good. Nice. That's great. Let's do even more of that. You know, some people respond well to that. Some people don't. Some people, they'll only change their behavior if they get negative. Hey, not like that. No, don't do that, you know? And then, look, I hate to break it. There, there are just some some people out there, I don't know why, but... Like they only respond to punishment. Like if you take something away, you know what I mean? Now, hopefully if you get through to that athlete, eventually they can, they can respond to positive reinforcement, but it's like, you have to understand how to communicate people. Like what is motivating these athletes to do what they do? Are they trying to run a PR because they're trying to make mom and dad happy? Are they trying to win a PR because they just have something inside of them? They want to be a champ. They like pushing themselves. They like, they like challenging themselves. Are they trying to impress other people? Um, are, do they just feel like a failure in general? And this is the one place they feel like a winner. Like you have to, you have to understand that about your athletes in order to really get them to go that extra mile. Well, and I feel like in the pole vault community too, everyone wants the negative feedback. Like they're asking for it. So I find myself a lot of times like holding back on that when they're asking. Yeah. I, know, I, I have a couple male vaulters right now that, you know, they do something, they, they jump and they have a full vault and they know they did something wrong. And I'm telling them like, Hey, that run was awesome. That's the best run you've had all day. And they're like, well, the jump sucked. What do I, what do I need to fix? Well, look, we're not worrying about right that right now. Like we know that an athlete can take on average one or two cues and work with them. Right. So like we're working on the run right now and that was your first one that was good. So let's do that three or four more times and then we'll talk about the next error you're making. But for right now, like let's look at the good point you just made. Right. No, I, I, I think that's, that's a really great point because you can get caught into that always just like, 
oh, but this was bad. It's like, yeah, but if you weren't like, if you weren't working on your drive knee and your run was great and that's what you were working on, focus on that. And, and until you do that consistently, we can't really jump to the next thing, you know? So that, that, that's really important. Um, something I, I also wanted to ask you about like the college coaching scene a little bit. And, and I want to get to when you made your next move to, to the next school that you went to is, um, can you maybe describe for people how much time and effort you were putting in at, or, uh, those first five years at E-Town? And oh. I mean, if, if you wouldn't mind sharing, you know, I mean, like, you know, I mean, were you getting paid? Like, what were you getting paid? You know what I mean? Because I, I think some people have like really skewed view of what they think college coaches get paid. I think some people don't realize that most times assistant high school coaches may be getting paid more than college coaches. So my first coaching job, I made minimum wage, which at the time I think was seven twenty-five. I don't know if okay. it's still that. Yeah. Um, and we were capped at four hundred hours for the year. That was it. Yeah. That's counting travel to and from the meets, coaching the meets, doing all the training. Yeah. Um, and I was individualizing as much as I could for every athlete. Right. And so by the time I put the training in and was at practices five days a week plus the meets, and then I also picked up extra responsibility of meet director for our home competitions, Mm -hmm. I was putting in anywhere from like 30 to 50 hours a week coaching. Right. And And you're only getting paid for for how many hours a week? And how many hours a week were you getting paid? Uh. I just put all my hours in, and once I hit 400 for the year, I was done. I just didn't put any more in. Wow, yeah, yeah. So I usually hit that, like, February. Right, right, yeah. And then, so then you're coaching the rest of the year basically for free, you know? Oh, absolutely. Well, I mean, at that point, and it's depending on how you look at it. Like, if you're looking at it as a profession right away, mm-hmm. you can't do that. Like, you have to work your way into a coaching profession. Right. I was looking at it as a resume builder. So every right. day I was there, paid or not, this is one step towards my goal of doing this for a full-time living. Right. And, and listen, like I, I try to explain this to people too. I literally, I coached Ramapo college for free. Um, I, yeah, Craig had won a national title before I got paid as a Ramapo college pole vault coach. And again, I coach Ramapo. It's, a, it's an assistant position. It's part-time. I, I do not get a huge stipend, right? But like, what I'm saying is you definitely have to put your time in, you know what I mean? I, even building my club, I don't think people realize, uh, how many people I worked with and how low, uh, like I started out such low costs. Like I, I remember the first time I charged money for athletes, it was $300 for the entire summer as often as you'd want to jump, you know, cause the club was small and I would just, I'd be there every day. So if somebody wanted to come in five days a week, they come in five days a week, you know? And so you know, it's like you in the beginning have to put yourself out there. And like you said, you have to build your resume. You have to build your skills. So you can't expect people to pay a premium when you're green, you know? Well, and it's like you said with Craig, like when he won nationals is when they finally started to recognize you. Right. And I experienced something similar to that. And, you know, I'm sending resumes out and I have conference champions and, and conference medalists, but I wasn't getting any calls back. And I was like, what's going on? Like, do, Am I not good enough? Am I, do I not know the right people? Yeah. But then doors started opening after the same thing. I had a national champion. So now all of a sudden I send a resume out. They're like, all right, this guy's serious. Yeah. And now I start getting phone calls back, but it literally takes until you get that level of success for people to even recognize you because there's so many people that want to coach for so few jobs. Right. Right. And, and it, and it's funny because I, you know, I remember one time having a conversation uh, <laughs> with a certain individual in the pole vault community, and I was like, look, like, I just, you know, if I don't coach someone to Olympic trials in the next, like, five years, I think I said to the person, I was like, I'm, I'm quitting because I must not be that good of a coach. And the guy goes, what are you talking about? Are you being serious right now? I go, dude, I mean, they're, 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 I, I freaking see bozos coaching people to these high levels. And he goes, listen, Bronco. He goes, there's people that coach pole vaulters to the Olympics that don't know anything about pole vault, you know? And he goes, look, how many, you know, national uh, championships or how many people have made it to nationals? How many times has Ramapo gone to nationals just because they have a pole vaulter that you coached? 
He goes, you're doing a good job. He goes, you need the right athlete. And I think that's kind of the tough thing with college coaching too, because if you're not at the right school at the right time with the right athletes, it's going to be really hard to win a national title, you know? And on the other hand, you know, you know what I mean? We don't have to like name names or anything, but it's like, there's, there have been people that have coached national champs that don't, they don't really know what they're doing a hundred percent. They're just, they, they're lucky to have a great athlete, you know? Well, and I think that, that, uh, you know, you're reminding me of conversations I've had with a VP for one of the schools that I've coached at in the past that, and he would always say this, you know, you're doing such a great job with these young men and young women and, you know, they're qualifying for nationals, they're winning conference titles, they're doing great in the classroom, they're going on and they're getting jobs in the coaching world right out of school. It's like, you're doing such a phenomenal job. And I tell him, it's like, honestly, this isn't my work. This is their work. I'm just lucky enough to work with great people. Right. And his response, and I, I think about this at least once a month, and this was years ago we had this conversation, yeah. his response is like, and that's what makes you a good coach because you yeah. look at it that way. Right. Yeah, a 100%. Because, we, I mean, we were talking about this last week. I mean, how often as a coach, it's like you kind of feel like that, that maybe that person that won nationals or that athlete that's doing really well, it's like you barely did anything. It was just so easy. Like you were doing like basic stuff, vanilla program, and that person's ex- excelling. Meanwhile, you might have had a lesser athlete that you're pulling out every trick out of the bag and they're just they're just getting to the point where they can score at conference. You know what I mean? And sometimes those are, are the best coaching jobs that you've ever done is the ones where you're really squeezing it out and, and, and pulling every trick out of the bag to get a performance. But yet, like you said, a lot of times when you're looking for jobs, the only thing they want to look at is like, well, did you win nationals? Right. You know? And, and, you know, any interview I've, I've had, and it's not a pole vaulter, but I bring up, you know, the greatest coaching success. They always want to know that. So my greatest coaching success is a triple jumper that I worked with um, at the second school I was at, which is University of Rochester. Mm-hmm. So when she came to me, she could not make it in the pit off from a college board. Yeah. But yeah. she busted her butt. She did all the sprint training. She lifted every day that she was required to. She asked for feedback constantly. She stayed on the campus over the summer to do extra work. She improved eight feet and qualified for the ECAC championships, which for D3 is basically like, it's like D1 regional. regional. Yeah. yeah. And so she went from like, I can't make the pit to qualifying for a regional championship. And that's phenomenal. Like, no, you yeah, that's you're huge. never going to see her on a national list. You're, she barely made the podium for the conference meet because we just had a stacked conference that event. Yeah. But that's my greatest coaching accomplishment because we had to do extra stuff because she just wasn't there as an athlete, but she right. made it. Right. No, yeah, I, I think th- those are the things that I, I think, it, like you said, and like like your your athletic director said, it's like, if you are really a good coach, you always you always give credit to others, and when you have that mentality, you're always going to look back and you're going to see those athletes, the ones that really had to go an extra mile to do something special. You know what I mean? Special for them. Maybe it's not recognized nationally, but it's like that was really special. You got that person to the next level. You know. Um, so when you when you went to Rochester, uh, I forget. Were you the head coach there? How how did that happen? You know. Um, I was a full-time assistant, okay. um, so same type of role, just full-time instead of part-time, which was a huge change. You know, then all of a sudden, I can be in the office all every day and mm-hmm. and meet with the students one-on-one and like work on their their abilities as a person as well yeah. as just athletically. Mm-hmm. Um, and and how I got there is actually, you know, Etown tried to keep me. The head coach did. And he went to try to get me a raise. He's like, look, this is the guy that coached our only national champion in the school since 1982. Can we do anything? Can we get him some more money? Like, we're going to lose him. Yeah. And they're like, no, we don't, we don't have any more money for assistant coaches. Sorry. That's, that's it. Right. And so I was like, all right, then, you know, I'm, I'm moving on. This is a step up. Right. And it's at a program that has traditionally done really well at the national stage. Right. And so went there. I was there for four years. Um, and had some great success. A lot of people um, made the national list, but unfortunately, none of them made the cut um, mm-hmm. to make it to the meet. But they were on every year, broke a couple school records. Um, in my mind, I kind of feel like there were some things left on the table when I left. 
but mm-hmm. overall like great athletes and and uh you know we were still seeing each other at competitions then and and had some guys jumping um in like the high 14s girls jumping right around 11 yeah um and and got to work with some awesome people you know that with all the schools up there um you know you've had some of the coaches from brockport on the podcast in the past like yeah. being up there with andy mm-hmm. and like learning from him um, learning from Matt Scheffler, Ithaca, and just being around the pole vault culture in New York State, which is so different. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the Cortland vaulters. I learned more about track in my four years in New York State than I did every year from middle school to my fifth year coaching at E-Town. Yeah. It was just, it was a plethora of information that like, it was almost like drowning in data. I didn't know what to do with it. Yeah, no, I, I, I think a lot of people don't understand how big the culture is up there. You know what I mean? I, I, I even when Andy Fester was on the podcast, we also had Ed, Ed uh, Jaskaluski on. And I mean, Ed, you know, as a throws coach and a strength and conditioning coach, vast amounts of knowledge. And I, ju- I just think that all those programs up there are so strong and they had, they spend so much time beating up on each other. It's like, it just brings the whole, whole area up and it's just a lot a lot of knowledge up there um also just just so gonna make you thrive yeah and uh just real quick too um your national champ uh just so people know was from e-town that was kevin clark what what did what did he end up jumping and what what did he come in uh to e-town with and what did he end up jumping uh he came in with a pr of i believe 15 6 um and we kind of lucked into him because when he was in high school, he, he jumped really well, broke their school record, um, which now has been broke by Joe Barry, who was a SEC champ for Tennessee. Yeah. Um, but leading up to the state meet his senior year, he still had some D1 interest. His pole got caught in the mat and he ran into it, had to get seven stitches in his knee. So we went to the state meet on crutches, still jumped, but like nowhere near what he should have. Right. So he kind of falls off the radar. And so he ends up coming to E-Town. Um, and jumped phenomenal, uh, as freshman. He, he didn't have a huge PR as a freshman. I think he jumped 15, 8 or 15, 9. Um, but that put him as number one freshman in the country that year. Um, and then just lifted like a madman. We, we had him in the weight room six days a week all summer long. Um, and then once he got to the season, we dropped down to two or three days and increased the, the running volume and, and it worked. And he ended up winning a national title at, 5.22 meters, which is like 17, one and three quarters. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, listen, I, I know there's a podcast where obviously can't show any video, but man, Kevin was a stud, like awesome, awesome athlete. I mean, I remember post collegially, you would get pissed sometimes because he, he would show up to jump at a meet and he had just played like rugby the day before. <laughs> right. He was, he was in this thing called Cronum that, um, some, rich guy in Philadelphia made up as a sport. And I think it's still at some colleges, but yeah, he was getting paid like $300 a game. So I trained him for three years post collegiately. And his thing was like, look, they're paying me to do this. I'm doing this just to try to make it to the trials, right. but I'm not making any money doing it. So I'm going to go where the money is first. I, I feel like also people don't understand the climate. I mean, that, that was probably like what, around like 2007 ish or something. Yeah. He won in 2007, graduated 2008. Yeah, and it's like what I feel like people fail to remember is like at that point there were some NCAA Division One titles being won with like eighteen. So it's like his, his winning height that year would have been eleventh at the national championship D one. Right. Yeah, and it's like so. I mean, pole vault was kind of at a, a lower point back then, where there were a lot of people trying to chase Olympic trials that were right there. But you know, again, I, I think even with your story about Kevin, I mean. Listen, I mean, after college, it's hard. You got to make money. You have to, you know, provide a living for yourself. And and jumping takes, uh, if you want to jump high, it takes a a lot of time and a lot of effort, you know, and you have to be able to manage that. And some people don't manage it well, you know, because I I feel like a lot of people and anybody who's listening who's in college right now, you are never going to have more time in your life than when you were in college. You know what I mean? And so you can really put in a lot of time and energy and still have free time. But it's like if you're an adult, you finish college and you want to keep jumping and you need to have a full-time job too, there's a huge time crunch and it's a huge commitment. It's almost like you almost have to make that decision like, okay, family and friends have to go to the back burner. I'm just working and training, you know? And so that's that's tough. That's a tough thing. And that's why I feel like a lot of people struggle uh, post-collegiately. Well, and, and 
you don't even think about it when you're in college, how much time you're actually putting into it, unless you sit down and calculate it. Right. Um, when I was in college with decathlon training, um, and I know you explored that a little bit in one of the recent podcasts, but mm-hmm. like decathlon training, I was putting in, you know, three, four hours a day, five days a week to get in the lift, to get in the run. I was, um, working out with some, uh, local club team, um, to get yeah. a second workout in on the day. And then I was still obviously a college student, had all my classes and studies afterwards. I had a job off campus yeah. and you're thinking, man, I got all this in my life, yeah. but you take track away and there's a lot of downtime. Right. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. hundred percent. So, so now from Rochester, where do you go? Uh, from there. So I was full-time assistant there. Like I said, had a lot of good success and that ended up, um, getting me an opportunity to take over a head coaching role at Alvernia university. Okay. Um, that was in 2013. And a lot of that actually was on a recommendation from, uh, one of the, the now head coach, but former assistant coach at Elizabethtown that called up the AD and was like, look, we haven't been able to get a sprinter or a jumper recruiting wise since Eric's been here. Like as far as like in mass, mm-hmm. they get one or two a year, but like the last year I was there, I left and, and left them with a couple of kids that ended up being all Americans. Okay. Um, so, you know, division three recruiting is huge. So you bring in bodies that are quality athletes. And you yeah. bring in a lot of them, and that that sounds good. So, so his recommendation really was the catalyst to get me into that head coaching role and kind of take over a program. Yeah. Um, and then the other part of that, which um, I didn't really delve into a whole lot in the previous two, but I was also working on strength and conditioning stuff as I was in those previous two roles. Okay. And so I did learn a lot from Ed when I was up in in uh, in Rochester, and when I went to Alvernia, theirs was a dual role. So I was head coach for cross country and track as well as strength and conditioning coach for all of their varsity sports. Wow. Wow. I, I, I feel like, I, well, yeah, I was going to say, I mean, like for people who are listening, I mean, that's just, that's a big job because you know, you have your track practices, which I'm sure you were like cutting up into multiple practices, depending on event groups. Then, then you need strength and conditioning time for your track athletes. Then you have your office hours that you got to do all your prep and planning for like what meets you're going to go to this, that, and the other. And then you've also got to do strength and conditioning for every, uh, for every athlete in the school. And that's, yeah, I can't imagine what those days were like. Yeah. So, but by this point, it was worth it, right? They were paying you what, like five hundred thousand a year? Oh, I wish. I mean, <laughs> I, I have made less money in every coaching job I've had than I did in my full time job prior to coaching. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it, it's part of it. You know, I I enjoy the job more than I do the money. So right. that's never been a huge issue. Yeah. But you know, it does become a drain when you know. When I was at Alvernia, I'd wake up, get into work, leave the house at 5.30, get there. First session would be at like 6, 6.30 in the morning, and I wouldn't leave until almost 8 o'clock at night by the time all the sessions are done. Yeah. Yeah. And and, and by the way, for, for, for people who are listening, I mean, you're married. You have a family, you know. So yeah, married two kids. Yeah. So and, and that that actually made it a lot harder, but in a way, it allowed them to the kids to kind of tap into um, a different type of culture than what most people grow up in. Right. They yeah. come to practice with me. Yeah. I got pictures of my oldest son when he's one year old. Um, he was born in Rochester, so he's sitting there with a stopwatch timing sprints for me. Right. Um, yeah. So you know, he he already last year for school, he had to do a little project. On what do you want to be when you grow up? He wants to be a track coach. Ah, oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. So step I, aside, firefighter. <laughs> um, yeah. So I I, I want to also ask this question. I mean, I guess because it's a, a good time. Being that you know you've been in all these different positions, you've gotten athletes from all over. Um, I, I guess almost it's like two parts, right? One, it's like how difficult is it to recruit at the D three level, and in your opinion. Do you feel that, like, should it be that difficult to recruit at the D three level, or what do you? Th- well, what do you? What do you think makes it difficult to recruit at the D three level? Because I, I, I'll tell you, I, just real quick. I think ten years ago it was way easier to recruit at the D three level. I think it's a lot harder now. What, what, what do you? Th- what do you think contributes to that? Um, I feel like 
at least in the sport of track and field, Division Three has gotten a bigger profile, um, in part from some of the athletes that have come through it, you know, like a Nick Simmons, who's made multiple Olympic teams, mm-hmm. or Jeremy Scott, um, who went to Allegheny College and, and uh, made an Olympic team. But like, yeah. you get these high-level athletes that are going and doing great things out of D3 schools, which you don't see in the team sports. Right. Um, but also because the knowledge of track and field training is so much easier to access from a high school level, the kids mm-hmm. are getting trained better now. And so the marks are going up everywhere. Every event's going up. So now D1, D2, D3, we're all going after the same kid. Right. There's not a lot of money for the D1 kids. Yeah. And there's no money for the D3 kids. But if they're really smart, now there is. And so financially, it ends up being a wash. And so, you know, we're all going after the same kids. And unlike some of the other sports, you know, if you're a D1 football player, the D3 guys aren't going to go after you. You're at a different level. Yeah. But in track, like, if I go to the state meet and I see a 16 foot vaulter, right. And right next to me, is you know the U Penn coach and they see a sixteen foot vaulter, we both want a sixteen foot vaulter. Right. And that would both help us out. It's just a matter of who's gonna get them. And so that becomes more competitive because to be at a national level, you still have to recruit that D one talent. Well, right. So I mean, you know, I feel like I've said this before on the podcast, but for people who don't know, right, if you're a girl in Division Three, you've got to jump 12-plus to go to Nationals. If you're a boy in Division Three, you've got to jump 16-plus to go to Nationals usually. And so the thing is, I, I feel like even more so, it's this. I mean, you might have a 14-6, 15-foot vaulter at the high school level, and you have all these like lower-tier D1s that are also trying to recruit that kid because they would do well at their conference meet. Um, even more so, I know I, I had this situation just this past indoors, uh, you know, one of my guys jumped 15 and, you know, a Penn state coach went up to the kid and, and the parents, and I told the parents, I'm like, this is what I think you you take it however you want. But I was like, you know, you guys are, and I think he's committed to a, a, a division three school now. I go, but you, you guys have been looking at this division three school, this, that, and the other. I think that's a great situation. They have poles, they have great facilities, and they have a coach that's going to care about him and be at all his meets. And, you know, he's going to be important at that school because walking in, he's going to be one of their studs. I go, he goes the Penn State route. Listen. They're, at their conference meet, you, you got to be in the 16s just just to score a point, you know? And so if he goes there and he's not jumping 16, like, right away, he's just another person. Like, they're not they're not going to be putting a lot of time or effort into him, and he's not even going to get to compete that much. And, and I feel like, unfortunately, I'm one of the few high school-level coaches, right? Because at my club, I have a lot of high school athletes that's trying to put athletes into a good situation. I think a lot of coaches out there want to be like, oh, look at that. I got Johnny into Penn State. Or, oh, look at this. I got Sally into um, you know UNC Chapel Hill. And it's like what they're not looking at is like, is that person going to compete for four years? Or are they going to just sit on the bench or end up quitting? You know what I mean? Right. Well, and, and uh, so I had a, a similar situation where you know we got a kid out of high school. Uh, but he was on the team with, with Kevin when he won his national title. Okay. A great athlete. He missed nationals by an inch. Wow. I think he jumped 15-8. Right. This kid never won a dual meet. He never won a conference title. Right. Because he's got a, a four-time All-American and a national champion as a teammate. Right. Same year. Right. Uh, but he's in a five-year program for, for engineering. And so after his first three years, he transfers to a D, D1 school who we have this um, academic program combo with. Mm-hmm. And he goes there and we see him at a meet. He's like, and this is weird. Like, I'm the best vaulter on the team. My PR is higher than their school record. And they're a D1 school. Right. Like, I'm third in the conference right now. Wow. But kind of what you're saying, like, you got to make sure it's the right fit. Right. Because he worked well with our training program and he went from a 13-6 to a 15-8 guy. Right. But... He went to this other school. They started training him, and the intensity was higher, but his body wasn't built for that. So he ended up getting hurt and not finishing his fourth year of eligibility yeah. because he had a back injury that didn't allow him to jump off the ground. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, listen, it, it, 
a lot of these schools too that that maybe are D one, they might not actually have a vault coach on staff. You know, it's like you, I, I think when choosing a college, you have to make sure it's a good fit. Like I've had some kids go D one that went somewhere where it was a good fit. You know what I mean? They were going to be competitive in that conference. They're going to do well. The academics made sense. E- everything was good. But I've seen far too many kids go to schools where it's like there were other schools in their wheelhouse where they would have been able to compete more, had a better experience, but yet they're choosing maybe just a name. You know what I mean? And and I, I feel like that's that's kind of the unfortunate thing, and I think people have to start to open up and really think about this. I think the other thing that's hurting D3 schools is, you know, I think 10 years ago, people were not too concerned about taking out student loans. They're like, ah, oh, what, what the hell? I'll just take a student loan. I think now people are becoming more and more aware of how, how much of a detriment to the rest of your life it is if you graduate school with a hundred, two hundred thousand dollars worth of loans. And I and I just feel like what's happened at the D three level is like a lot of times, like like you know, we can only give money out for academics. And if you don't meet the requirement, then it's it, it becomes difficult to get that person to school, you know, because. There could be a, a lower tier D one that is giving some money to the kid. You know, well, what I mean? think that that's part of the reason why too with the D three level, and I, I'm not even say D three level, but a private school level, you're now starting to see some of the financial aid departments looking at it differently. Yeah, like lowering the price tag or going through like we're going to meet 100 percent need for 80 percent of our students. And right. trying to figure out a way to make it more affordable for people because they're losing students left and right to the state schools and the tech schools and the, the junior colleges. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. I mean, I, I think, you know, where I think Ramapo used to get recruits that would choose Ramapo versus a private because the private was more expensive. Now those private schools, like you said, they are, they are figuring it out and being like, okay, we have to be more affordable. Otherwise we're not going to get these students, you know? Um, the other topic that I wanted to kind of ask you about um, is, you know, as, as a college coach, you're recruiting a pole vaulter. Let's say they went to a- any pole vaulting club. Doesn't matter. How do you, how do you treat that situation? Like, what 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 do you do? You know, do you do you ask the kid about their their background, what club they went to, how they practice, or is it just clean slate? Like, what, how do you handle those situations? Oh, I absolutely ask him. Um, cause you know, everyone coaches a little bit differently and we kind of touched on it a little bit earlier with like everyone's communication style and how they relay the same information is different. Right. So I'm very upfront with them. Like, look, I've been around the sport a long time. I know most of the clubs, um, within several state radius of here. Who do you jump for? Do you like their program? Do you not like their program? And what is it you do or don't like about it? And then we'll talk about that and I'll tell them flat out. I can coach you in any system that you're already in. Mm-hmm. But if something looks like it's not working, we're going to change it. Yeah. So I give that confirmation right away. Like, you know what? You're an apex kid and you love the way Bronco teaches it. Maybe I don't teach the exact same way off the ground with pulling with the bottom arm. But if it's working for you, I understand it and we can work with it. Right. If it doesn't look like it's working, we're going to try another tool. Right. Right. Yeah. No, and and I and I think that's a really good way to handle it because I know even I've had athletes come from either other clubs or other situations and maybe somebody moved, you know, like whatever. When they first come to the club, like I I, I told you about Pete Roach. When Pete Roach first started coming to the club, he's he jumped at Cornell. He's a seventeen nine guy, you know. At first, you know, he was doing a lot of his kind of own thing. I mean, it worked within the function of the club, like it, it, you know, he warmed up or whatever, but like. I would let him do kind of the drills or the progressions he would want and slowly start to introduce more and more of the apex stuff, you know? And, you know, I mean, I think that's huge. You can't just, when an athlete comes to you, you can't just right away be like, ah, my way or the highway. I mean, I guess you can, if like, let's say you're a big D one, you already have like three guys jumping 18 and it's like, fine. But you know, if you if you really want to get the most out of each athlete, I think you have to try to get them acclimated, you know, and see, you know, maybe they do also do something that you find it is valuable to them. And we're going to stick with that because that's working. And then maybe add a little bit other pieces that could help that along. You know, I, I think you have to have an open mind about it. Like I always think about 
this one situation with, uh, for people who don't know, Bobby Knight was a really, really good college basketball coach. A um, little bit controversial. He would blow his top a lot. But he had this one basketball player that, you know, he had a funky jump shot. Like he would let his elbow stick out. And although that's not the way you want to shoot a basketball, it, you know, this that's how that athlete knew how to shoot. And Bobby Knight would like bench him all the time. Eventually the kid transferred, went to another college, had a successful college career, and even played in the NBA. So it's like, you know, again, there's things that we would really, really like. But then it's like, okay, but what's the reality of the situation and how are you going to handle it, you know? And, de- and depending on your situation, like if you're only pole vault, you might have an opportunity to do that. That's not how it works in most college coaching jobs. You're doing other events. Mm-hmm. So how much time do you have to kind of recreate the wheel? Like the kids already learned how to run a certain way, carry a pole a certain way, plan a certain way. You could go back and act like they know nothing to teach them your system from the ground up. Or you could look at their system, figure out what can stay and what can go, and then make adjustments. Right. And their brain's already working with the old system, so it's going to be harder to reinvent that wheel than it is to just make adjustments to it. Yeah, and and going back to communication or even more so it's psychology, I think like, look, if an athlete comes to you, you're recruiting an athlete, and you're like, hey, everything you did sucked, we got to like completely revamp this. I mean, I don't know what you're expecting from that, but most people are going to be like, uh, screw you. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's like, that's, that's just, you, you, you don't want to put yourself in a situation where most likely the person's going to be pissed at you. So, you know, it's like, again, you well, want to be like, Hey, look, all the kids from that club too. Right. They right. That. They're taking it back. It's like, man, you should have been there the other day. They, Coach Bennett was talking crap about Bronco's system. <laughs> I wouldn't go there because he will not work with an apex kid. And so now that's what everyone says. So, you know, next time you got a 15 foot guy right. that wants to go for a degree that I can offer him at, at Elizabethtown or Albright or wherever I'm at, right. um, which are the two schools I'm at currently, okay. um, then, you know, they're not going to come to me because remember that one time we had a kid go there and he said, he's not going to work with you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I know it's, it's very, very interesting. And, and I even, you know, th- this is something too, that I think is, is really, really important if from a club coach's standpoint. Listen, I don't know what people think, but it's like, when you have people that are jumping high, believe me, there are going to be people that will act like your best friend, as long as you have people who jump high. And when you don't have people that are jumping high, guess what? You won't hear from those people anymore. So it's like, as a club coach, I respect the people that actually respect me. And I can have conversations and I value that person's opinion. They value my opinion. What I think sometimes, uh, you know, even a high school coach can kind of like get caught up in is like you're trying to like, let's say, impress a certain college coach or impress a certain circle of people. And it's like, look, at the end of the day, those people are only going to uh, give you any or show you respect if you have someone that's jumping high, regardless if you're doing a good job or not. And, if, and you know what? You might be doing the best job in the world, but if you just don't have the athletes to jump high, those people are no longer going to want to talk to you. So it's like, it's, you know, it's weird. And I think what you're bringing up is like, that's fine. You could be like really strict and say, you like this, you don't like this, like that as a college coach. But then when that, that coach has an athlete that's jumping high, what the heck are you going to do? It's going to be tough to recruit from that person because you've already disrespected them. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I know that um, because of, the relationship that Kevin and I formed um, when he was in college and then after college, um, his high school coach would come to meets and he would talk to me afterwards and, and give me some advice on some ways that maybe he communicated with Kevin that, that worked really well. Right. Or he would like comment on some of the things that he couldn't get out of Kevin that I did. Mm-hmm. And because of that, like, I didn't get Joe Barry, who ended up going to Tennessee, um, but I knew Joe when he was in high school. Right. And even after he graduated from Tennessee, he's still trying to, to make a U.S. team, and he's borrowing polls from me because we had a relationship because right. of a relationship of somebody that graduated before him from yeah. the same school. Yeah, because look, I, I I think establishing and maintaining relationships is is huge, and I and I think you know again the whole like especially the pole vault game has changed so much. I think where let's say in the late nineties or even early two thousands, if you recruited a kid who jumped, you know, a boy who jumped fourteen six fifteen in high school, 
more than likely at that time, it's like they got minimal coaching and they had minimal equipment. So it's like you just gave them a few poles and coached them up a little bit and, and they would PR, you know, a foot and a half right away. But it's like that's not happening anymore. I think there's a lot more knowledge out there. I think a lot more people know what they're doing. And so now you're getting more athletes that are getting to the collegiate level that are coached better. And so now, I, I mean, I think you have to, you know, be respectful of the process that that person has already been through, you know? See, you're making me feel like a better coach right now because <laughs> when I first started coaching in that time frame you're talking about, remember when I left Elizabethtown, the average across the board men, women was nine inches per year gained yeah which is huge like right you're, you're looking at over three feet over the course of four years right and nowadays you know if there's years that i might only get a two-inch pr out of someone right and it's like so the, the kids are coming in a little bit higher but also like we're correcting less things right these less major things they're coming in already having lifted they're coming in with the knowledge of how to run they're coming right. in with knowing what pole they're on which you know 10, 15 years ago, they didn't even know what pole they should be on. They got there, and I'm like, yeah, I don't know what I was using. It was a 13-something. Right. Yeah, yeah. Or, or even look at even your own high school career, right? It's like you were jumping on a 15-35. It's like when maybe in high school you would have jumped higher if you were on like a 14-55. You know what I mean? Like, you know, so it's like there's just so many different things that was like, yeah, these huge mistakes that, that people were seeing initially where now – no, it's like you're getting an athlete that's already in the system, in a system, and you have to just keep, you know, growing that athlete. You know, um, I don't know. I, I just I feel like that's a huge, huge thing that people have to kind of recognize. Um, and I think if they do that, they're gonna they're gonna have much better luck with their athletes, and it's gonna be less frustrating too. Because I think going back to like what you described, it's like yeah, you know, it's like. A lot of us early on, it's like we all became accustomed coaches and athletes to have like foot PRs every year. And it's like at a certain point, you're not going to keep PRing by a foot. You know what I mean? Like even if even if like Kevin Clark post-collegially wasn't doing that rugby stuff, it's like it's like he wasn't going to PR two feet. You know what I mean? Like in one year, you know? So it's like the, I, I feel like that's the thing that people have to understand. Like the longer you do an event like pole vault, you know, the the gains start to slow down. Yeah, you could PR, but you're not going to PR a foot every year if you do it for 10 years, you know? Right. Oh, absolutely not. It's, it's too hard to, to make those incremental changes when you've already got most of it figured out. Um, and one thing that I think that's happened to the pole vault community lately that's going to make this just accelerate even more with having kids coming in with that big knowledge base is um, a few months ago when, when Sean Francis released his book, yeah, you can't get beginner to book anymore. Like I find it online for you know over a hundred dollars in some markets. Right. Yeah. I need to replace mine. My cover's ripped. Like the seams ripped on the edge. The pages are folded over. Like I've read the beginner to book book so many times. Right. If I read it anymore, I feel like I'm gonna have to use tweezers to turn the pages. Right. Uh, but then Sean comes out with this book and he's posting things on social media that you know these, there's kids' moms buying this book and reading yeah. it. Yeah, you are giving knowledge about this sport to people that never would have explored it had you not published the book. Right, right. No, I, I, I think it's huge, and I mean, I've had Sean on the podcast a, a bunch of times, and you know, I, I have a copy of the book, and yeah, it's awesome. I mean, there, there is like, I like the way I described it to Sean was like. I remember Arnold Schwarzenegger had this like, uh, you know, book of like lifting weights or bodybuilding and it was just literally like every exercise you could do. And I, I feel like Sean did a good job of just giving you all as many ideas as he could about like, you know, what do you do in this situation? What do you do in that situation? What drill is this? What, what does this drill, you know, work on? What does that drill work on? And it's, it's going to help a lot, a lot of people, you, you know? Cool. And I think the title hit it on the head with calling it the toolbox. Right. And, it's actually, he's done a great job, and I have not reached out to him to tell him this, but Sean, if you're listening, you've done a great job of working the word toolbox into my coaching vocabulary. Yeah. Because now, when somebody's stuck on something, I'll literally go to him like, all right, you know what? Let's go get another tool from our toolbox and figure out what to do next. Right. And sometimes it's out of his book. Yeah. No, I, 
it's it's amazing. And 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 again, I, I just think as time passes, more and more people are putting content out there and exchanging ideas. You know, uh, whether it's through Instagram, YouTube, wh- whatever, um, and and it's a lot easier. And and that's why I, I think the whole community, you know, everyone has to raise their game. You know, where I I think maybe in the past, you know you could kind of get away with maybe just doing some very like plain vanilla programs. Now it's like, no, we, we have to add some more wrinkles in there if we're going to remain competitive. And that's, look, that, that shows that our sport is growing. You know what well, I mean? It's got to be the right wrinkles. I, well, yeah. You know, you can't be uh, these crazy type of exercises that might help 1%. You got to look at it and like we do testing every year. Like where are you weak? Oh, you can't do a pull-up. All right, so you know what? We're going to work on negatives, and then we're going to work on assisted. And we're going to go, if you can't do a pull-up, there's a lot of things we can't do in the ball. Right. But some people will skip over that step and go to some in-air technique and, like, doing maybe a corkscrew off the top because they're not turning all the way. Right. They're not at a corkscrew yet. Yeah. And that's fun to do, and, like, that's an end-of-practice type of, of game you can play. Yeah, but they can't do a pull up. How are they going to turn themselves upside down? Right, right. No, I mean, I I think that that's an excellent point. You know what I mean? Like, it, it was funny. Someone uh, was talking to me, and they were like, "Oh, they they sent me some drill, and it was like one of those things where it's like a pole tied to a rope, and it bends, and you like just hang on it, and whatever." And it's like, "Oh, like that looks fun." I go, "Yeah, I mean, like that's fun, but like I go, like there's other things people need to be doing. Like, can you do a pull up?" Like you said, you know, can you do a pull-up? You know, if you can do a pull-up, do you do weighted pull-ups? You know, can, can you do leg lifts? You know, just a leg lift, simple, toe to bar. And it's like, yeah, but Bronco, but this is fun. I go, yeah, that's fun. I go, but you know what's really fun? PRing. PRing is fun. And, and, well, and go ahead. As right now, like, this is the perfect time to do it. So, like, I've seen things online where coaches are stuck and trying to figure out what they should do during this quarantine period. And, you know, with the, the athletes I coach, I was, I was very upfront. Look, there's a lot going on. It's a lot to mentally process. I'm not going to add physical stuff on top of right now. We're going to take a week off in this week. Let me know what you want to see. Yeah. And it was, it was overwhelming. Like everyone wanted to keep working out. And I was like, that's fine, but we can't jump. So here's what we're going to do. Right. There's some of those little things that we don't have time to do in season. So now we're going to work on like reducing your ground contact time for your jump. We're going to work on your vertical. We're going to work on manipulating your own body weight. So there's all sorts of stuff. You know, I told them that later um, in like the next training program, we're going to work on some grip strength stuff. Yeah. And it isn't something that like you're going to think, man, I got to work on my grip strength for pole vault. But it takes their mind off it. It gives them some different targets that they're going to be succeeding really fast because they've never done it before. And right. it's going to have translation to their jump later on. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, listen, and, and you're bringing up a good point with this time period where we're all stuck at home. It's there are little things that you could be working on that maybe you didn't address enough. You know what I mean? Like, listen, like maybe you avoided doing some core stuff that you don't normally do or, you know, like – if you have access to a pull-up bar or something like that, you've been avoiding pull-ups or leg lifts or something. You know what I mean? Like now is the time to get that stuff in. You know what I mean? Um, heck, I, I've i personally even been just using my stairs for box jumps. You know what I mean? Like I'll, I'll do – you know, I'm not that studly of an athlete. But like I'll just you know do sets of box jumps where I jump up four stairs. You know what I mean? Um, you know, in one jump. And you know, there, there's lots of little things that you can do if you get creative, you know? Absolutely. I've been doing the same thing. I've been using a picnic table out back for box jumps. <laughs> and uh, we have one of those Roman chairs with the pull-up bars on it. Okay. So every time I kind of get bored, just go back and do another set of 10 of each one. And most days I'm finishing with some player between one to 200 pull-ups. Um, wow. So, you know, I'm not going to the gym right now. My deadlift is going to suck. And yeah. I'm not going to have a great bench. But, man, my back is going to be awesome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, we, so we're about an hour in. I know you don't have much more time. Um, was there any other topic that you wanted to cover? Uh, not that I can really think of. I mean, we talked kind of about you know the, the training in this time and and that transition to college. Um, 
and and I'm going to harp again that on the communication piece for the coaches that are not um, keeping in contact with their athletes right now, and I'm not doing a great job of it myself, mm-hmm. um, and I know I need to get better at it. Like, look at the technologies out there. Um, I coach most of my coaching now is online, so mm-hmm. I coach track meets from my phone. Um, mm-hmm. and I use group me for that. And then there's also zoom meetings you can do with your kids. Um, you know, however you can communicate with them when this social distancing time period is, is happening, like anything you can do is going to help them out and it's going to let them know that, Hey, I'm still here. I'm still going through the same thing you are. And we are going to, we're going to make it out together. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. I, I, I think that's great. Great advice. You know, um, I've been staying in touch with a lot of my athletes, they want either workout ideas or just want to talk about pole vault a little bit, you know, um, Hey, it's, it's, it's the best thing we can do during these times and, uh, try to keep our sanity and try to keep some pole vault in our life. Um, you up on all the back issues of the, uh, apex vaulting podcast. Yeah, dude, right now, <laughs> right now, if there's any episodes you've missed, just go, go listen to them now. Um, I do, I, I'm really, I love the, I've been doing those pole vault companions with Joe Oliveri and those, those are a blast. You can queue up the YouTube video of the, the world championship that we watch and listen to our commentary on it. And it's, it's so much fun. And it's, it, it honestly, it it makes me feel like I'm watching it live. I know they're old competitions, but it's a lot of fun. And, and Joe, man, he always, he's got so much information on, on all the different vaulters. He, he's. He's like an encyclopedia of pole vault. Oh yeah, I used to love doing that when I first started coaching. I bought bought all the uh, the Neo Vault videos, which I'm not even sure if they're still available. Yeah, and I just sit down with athletes and just go through end to end in critiquing the vault, not necessarily yeah. commentating on it, but like right. looking at like, hey, look where his mid was, look where his takeoff yeah. is, look how he tucked on that one. Right now, look at that first step out of the back. Yeah. Those are great things to use as, as teaching tools. Yeah. Well, I mean, listen, I don't know if you can buy the D- uh, NeoVault DVDs, but for anybody that's listening and interested, just check out – I think NeoVault has a YouTube channel. Check out their YouTube channel because there's a lot of great stuff, that, a lot, lot of awesome competitions and awesome jumps. So, um, Eric, is there, is there any way that uh, anybody – do you want anybody following you on Instagram or anything like that? Or Yeah, I mean – you can absolutely do that. Uh, I don't post as often as I should. Um, so I, I need to get back on that bandwagon, but there is some stuff on there. Um, and Instagram is XP coach. Okay. Um, and then Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, it's XP athletics. Okay. Um, YouTube, there's not a whole lot of, uh, pole vault stuff on there. There's a crash video, but if you want to see some really good high jump, there's some of that on YouTube. Awesome. That's awesome. Well, Eric, th- thanks for joining us. Um, thanks for everybody who's listening. Uh, any comments or questions, please email us at apexvaulting at gmail.com. Uh, also, if you could subscribe to the podcast, even leave a, a review or a comment, that would be great. And uh, thanks for listening again.